Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here's your host, Sucheta Kamath. Okay, welcome back to Full Prefrontal, where we are exposing the mysteries of executive function. I am here with our host, Sucheta Kamath. Good morning, Sucheta. As always, great to spend some time with you. Appreciate uh, all you're doing for us on this uh, these important issues. Uh, have an interesting conversation today. We're gonna, but you're gonna lead us off with talking about BYOB, international travel, and self control. Please explain. Thank you, Todd. It's always great to be with you here. Yes. So, flight delays, crash landings, and unruly passengers has become a sort of everyday affair these days. You know, today I bring a special story of Andrei Zerdev. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. He's a Russian man who was flying to the Big Apple from his hometown of Moscow on one October morning in 2010. And as soon as he boarded, the trouble began. You know, he started pouring himself booze from his own supply. So right there, you can see it's a red flag. Of course, this is not permitted to bring your own booze on the plane, or at least not anymore. (laughs) The flight attendant took his bottle away only to find out that Zadev miraculously produced yet another bottle from his stash. When the flight attendant tried to take the second bottle away from him, the whole hell broke loose. Uh, Zadev began to scream and shout profanities, creating a ruckus on the plane. He first tossed the bottle, then the meal tray, and uh, finally he topped it off with the piece of carry-on luggage. The emergency situation, of course, was handled by the cabin crew uh, very elegantly. <laughs> they did that by moving, clearing away the passengers that were sitting ne- nearby. And as you can imagine, upon landing in Stockholm, Zerdev was handed over to authorities and fined severely. Uh, needless to say, he never made it to the Big Apple. So you ask me, why does this story matter to our conversation about executive function? Well, This is a fascinating story, and the question came to my mind was this. Is this tremendous self-control to not let go your booze, or a terrible (laughs) self-control as the man failed to adhere to airline regulation and safety rules and societal expectations, you know, what is allowed and not allowed on the airplane? And so we are going to talk about this very thing. How do we conduct ourselves and what does self-control look like? And as um, I have talked on my previous podcast uh, episodes, that self-control is the foundation of executive function proficiency. So, you know, what are these uh, situations that I'm going to talk about in a second have in common? You know, take Anthony Weiner sexting, uh, a student getting expelled from school for having out-of-control hair, a passenger being thrown out of the plane for throwing a tantrum to be seated next to a baby. All these situations are really showing failure in self-control. So when you control yourself, your life and uh, life of those around you improves for better. People with great self-control tend to do better in school. We know that research shows that they tend to be liked more by their peers, which is why they are more popular, I guess. They also tend to have enough self-control to not take risks 
that cause harm. So they are less likely to be, you know, to get in trouble and uh, they are less likely to be caught for um, uh, being in uh, indecent or unacceptable situations. They are less likely to get in trouble with law even, for example, getting arrested for doing illegal stuff. So above all, they enjoy the trappings of life for much longer than those who fail at self-control. So isn't it this overall interesting phenomenon, Todd, that you know self-control is so intricately tied in with uh, life outcomes, and yet uh, so many of us struggle with it on an everyday basis? So that's why we have this very special guest today. Um, he's one of my favorite researchers, and uh, I have personally heard him for the last 10 years every year uh, at an annual SPSP conference. So today I present you uh, Dr. Roy Bomeister. He's currently a professor of psychology at the University of Queensland. He's among the most prolific and most frequently cited psychologists in the world with over 600 publications. His 35 uh, books include the New York Times bestseller, Willpower, Rediscovering the Greatest Human Strength, his research covers self and identity, self-regulation, interpersonal rejection, and need to belong, sexuality and gender, aggression, self-esteem, meaning, consciousness, free will, and self-representation. In 2013, he received the William James Award for Lifetime Achievement in Psychological Sciences. This was uh, the Association of Psychological Sciences' highest honor. He has appeared on television shows such as Dateline NBC and ABC's 2020, as well as PBS, National Public Radio, and countless local news shows. His work has been covered or quoted in New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, The Economist, Newsweek, Time, Psychology Today, Self, Men's Health, Business Week, etc., 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 Personally, as I have mentioned earlier, I am tremendously thrilled to have him because I have learned so much about this concept of uh, willpower and another very interesting book that he has written on culture that I found extremely relevant to my work with the patients and clients with executive function challenges who find it very difficult to regulate themselves in the context of the world where they live. So that's who we have today. I'm looking forward to it. You know, Sucheta, I don't think I travel as much as you do, but I travel more than the average person does. And I am always struck by some of the odd and weird behaviors of my fellow passengers. And I haven't really thought of it in the context of self-control. So I'm, now that I'm aware of that, <laughs> I'm going to have to think about that when I interact with someone interesting on a plane uh, the next time I fly. So well, this promises to be an intriguing conversation. Let's get to it. Here is Sucheta's conversation with Dr. Roy Boymeister. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Boymeister. I'm so grateful to have you, and it's my privilege and honor to speak with you today. Let me get started with my first question. It's a bit rudimentary, but just for technical clarification, the term self-control will Willpower and motivation are, are part of the colloquial conversation, and a layman often uses these terms interchangeably. Would you take a minute and uh, help us understand uh, the concept or the definition of this? Okay, sure. Self-control would be the process by which a person changes his or her responses. It could be changing your thoughts, changing your emotions, 
impulse control, maximizing your performance, uh, any way that you exert uh, top-down control uh, over your yourself and your responses. Uh, willpower is more of a folk term, uh, refers to energy. Now, we have found in our research, it looks like self-control operates as if it's based on uh, some kind of energy. So there, there may be a genuine uh, scientific and even physiological aspect to this. But think of it as the energy that makes self-control possible. Motivation is a very fundamental concept in psychology. It refers to wanting uh, things, what drives the person to want this or that. So one of the basic motivations are for food and sleep and sexuality and, of course, survival, and uh, connecting with others and, and, and the like. Self-control, one reason self-control evolved was to enable people to choose when they have conflicting motivations. So if you want two things that are incompatible with, with each other, you use self-control to restrain the one and act on the other. So perhaps people uh, struggling with addiction, uh, they might have desires to use uh, the drug or the substance, uh, but they also want to uh, live a healthy life and, and not be dominated by this. And so uh, they would use self-control, ideally, to uh, suppress the urges to indulge in the addiction uh, and instead to pursue their, their longer-term goals. Self-control usually works more in favor of long-term uh, enlightened self-interest, uh, restraining the momentary, impulsive kinds of feelings. Oh, beautiful. That makes perfect sense to me. So my next question then in cognitive neuroscience, it's often described, uh, particularly from the perspective of executive function, the term impulse control, working memory, and cognitive flexibility are considered the bedrock skills that uh, hold executive functions together. So uh, with that context, is impulse control there can be compared to self-control or self-regulation? I'd say impulse control is one important category of self-control and self-regulation. So self-control, self-regulation are the broader terms. So impulse control, which is not just restraining urges to eat or drink or sleep with the wrong person and, and so on, but even more complicated things are restraining aggressive impulses. So, uh, But self-control can also be used for other things, like trying to make yourself concentrate on uh, what you're doing or to... Uh, shut uh, that annoying song out of your mind, um, <laughs> or to uh, you know, control your emotional state. That's not the same as impulse control. So again, self-control is a broader term, but impulse control is a very important and familiar subcategory. So time and again, you know, the research in social psychology, and particularly your uh, pioneering work, has shown that there, uh, it's abundantly clear that there are two and only two important factors that consistently have proven to have are integral to human success and their intelligence and self-control. And as I know from my work as well, that self-control certainly improves the quality of life, uh, makes us civil, and at the end of the day, uh, even contributes to transforming societies. Can you tell us why self-control is so critical? <laughs> uh, that's a good <laughs> question. Uh, it has a lot of uses. Uh, I, mean, I, I came to self-control after studying self-esteem, which you know, we had a long campaign in society to, thinking that raising self-esteem would solve a lot of people's problems, but the data didn't really back that up. Uh, but with self-control, clearly it does. That um, the measure of uh, self-control even in childhood uh, will predict how well one does uh, as an adulthood. Uh, it leads to uh, both, uh, actually more than two, um, 
self-control leads to all manner of good outcomes. People with good self-control do better in work and school. Uh, also interpersonally, they are more popular with others. They have better relationships. Uh, they have fewer personal problems with uh, addiction or psychopathology. They're less likely to be arrested, uh, and and they live longer. So I mean, that's a large set of uh, uh, of benefits, and even that doesn't exhaust exhaust its uh, positive outcomes. Now, your question, though, why is it that self control produces all these good things? Well. At its core, it's the ability to change yourself. Uh, and we live in complicated social environments so that it's necessary for us to conform to external rules and expectations to improve ourselves. Uh, there's even a theory that, that self-awareness, which is one of the most basic human traits, and one of the traits in which we, we go beyond almost all the other animals on the planet, that why are we so self-conscious? You know, people remember becoming self-conscious at adolescence and how uh, awkward and nervous one felt about all these things. <laughs> but <laughs> important theory that uh, self-awareness emerged precisely to help with self-control and self-regulation. You have to understand uh, yourself so that you can know, well, this is how I can change. And uh, Indeed, usually when people are self-aware, they're not just thinking, oh, here I am, but comparing themselves to goals and ideals and standards and uh, thinking, uh, yeah, I should everything from looking in the mirror and saying, oh, I should comb my hair and put on a nicer shirt to uh, reflecting on where you are in life. And uh, I think I should uh, come up with a new career path or uh, change my approach to uh, close relationships or uh, something else. So uh, again, self-awareness uh, enables us to change. And, and I think this adapting and adjusting is one part of the, the value of self-control. Another uh, is that it really goes toward helping us pursue long-term goals rather than immediate ones. I mean, this is something we easily forget, but most other animals in the world live in the immediate present, and, and that's it. They react to the environment as they see it right now, and they're not really capable of planning for the future. Even you know, squirrels burying nuts to find them in the winter, they don't really have an understanding of, I'm going to want this nut next February. Uh, they're just responding to momentary urges in their, <laughs> in their bodies. But, but humans uh, adjust. We change our behaviors based on uh, things in the, the distant past as well as the distant future. And, and that's highly useful and, and adaptive in the, in the biological sense. It makes us uh, more successful. So if you can resist temptations to do what feels good today, again, something that very few animals can can pull off successfully to do what feels good today but might be costly in the long run and instead uh, do what will pay off in the long run, you, you will indeed be, be better off in the long run. Even things like getting an education uh, on a day-to-day -day basis is a lot of uh, tedium and grind and chores. And, uh, sure, it would be more fun to uh, play games or drink wine or uh, relax <laughs> or anything else. But if you push yourself to do it, to pursue the degree, you end up with a better quality of life and higher lifetime earnings and uh, all sorts of long-term benefits. So that's another key to the way self-control makes life better is it enables us uh, to take the long view and to guide our present behaviors based on not what's best at the present moment, but what's going to be best in the long run. It makes us less likely to think, oh, I wish I had you know, flossed my teeth, or I wish I'd taken vitamins, or I wish I'd gone to college, or I wish I'd done the other things. Uh, you can 
anticipate those in advance and use self-control to make yourself do those and be better off in the long run. Oh, that's that's a <laughs> you you explained everything that I see on a daily basis with in my clinical practice. Uh, those who, in fact, need to exercise self-control are least aware, and they have a very short view of self, uh, as well as they have a disconnect between current self and future self. And uh, it's an arduous process to instill that self-awareness into some into somebody who doesn't have it. <laughs> it's really a painful yes. process. One of the classic um, studies by Warren Bickle uh, asked college students to complete a story where somebody got up and was thinking about the future. And uh, usually the future for them was about five years ahead, which is, is pretty good for a college student. And then he ran exactly the same study with heroin addicts, uh, and the future was, was less than two weeks. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, are, I remember that. Yeah. So uh, then now that you have explained this, what self-control is and why it really matters, do you mind explaining to us the mechanism of uh, self-control and uh, or willpower? And you often describe that as a muscle and how does that uh, does that mechanism work? Anyway, I like to say there, there are three main ingredients to self-control. The first is the, the standards or the goals. You have to have some ideals of how you want to be, what you want to change to, what you expect of yourself. And so, as I said, being self-aware is not just noticing yourself, but comparing yourself against to some, some ideals, some goals, some other standard. So that's usually not so much a problem. People know what they want to be. Uh, only difficulties if they have conflicting standards. So you, two parents give the child different ideas as to uh, what's expected in terms of proper behavior. But, but usually that one goes fairly straightforward. The second, you have to keep track. Uh, so this is where self-awareness comes in. You have to monitor the behavior. Very hard to regulate anything without being aware of it. And indeed, that's one of the easiest ways to improve self-control. Uh, what I advise people, if, if you want to, take up an exercise program or whatever, just start keeping written records of, you know, did you exercise today and how much? Obviously, when people go on dieting, if you didn't weigh yourself and didn't pay attention to what you're eating, it'd be very hard uh, to meet <laughs> your, your dieting goals when, in fact, most dieters uh, brush up on how many calories are on things and they uh, keep track uh, all day of how much they eat. So, uh, again, this... Uh, uh, this works. They also weigh themselves regularly to see if they're making progress. So all that, getting the information, monitoring uh, the aspects that are crucial, that also uh, is key to self-regulation. The third ingredient, as you mentioned, is, is willpower. It's, it's, it's like, uh, like a muscle or a, a physical strength, and uh, it seems to tie into the body's energy supply. Uh, so, for example, when you're sick and your immune system is using all your energy, you don't have as much self-control. Uh, so be careful uh, going shopping then. You may uh, spend uh, more than you uh, intended to. So the way this limited energy works, and uh, there's still a lot of very exciting research and going on, and people are debating various aspects of it, um, but it, it's pretty clear uh, what we've been finding for 20 years is uh, after people expend some of their willpower on one task, then they have less for something else. So if you have a demanding day, you're, you're more likely to give in to temptation uh, in the evening because your willpower is down. Sure enough, we find that uh, very few people have uh, self-control breakdowns first thing in the morning. <laughs> so you get a good mm. night's sleep and then uh, um, have a healthy breakfast. 
people don't go on a drug spree or a sex spree or a crime spree or a spending <laughs> spree or anything at first then diets are usually broken in the evening impulsive crimes are committed typically after midnight and, and so on and so forth so it looks like you you restore your body's energy by sleep uh, and also food if you get breakfast so you start off the day with a full tank and then it kind of goes up and down, but generally in a downward trend as the day goes on. So by evening, your your self-control is lower. You also need to know other things that drain self-control, like making a lot of difficult decisions. That takes away, that consumes the same energy. And so uh, we find uh, people's self-control is poorer after they've simply been asked to make a series of choices uh, and vice versa. After they've exerted self-control, their decision-making is uh, is not as sharp and as capable. Now, food helps, so uh, if you have to make a difficult decision at the end of a long day, maybe take a break and uh, get something to eat. Uh, that will you know, at least restore your body's willingness to uh, expend energy on, on self-control tasks. Oh, that's beautiful. So I have a few questions uh, to see if you can shed some light. Uh, in, in second point, uh, you know, the s- second ingredient you mentioned, which is uh, keeping track or self-monitoring. So when you need uh, self-awareness, but in my experience, you need something uh, which is a knowledge of passage of time, you know, this continuity in self. And a lot of times I find that self-control dwindles, you know, on the worst day. I mean, majority of uh, the college students I work with, you know, the day they get the grades, they are so depressed and they're also pumped to say, I'm going to study every day starting tomorrow, but the next exam is not for three weeks. So <laughs> the the studying they begin to do the, uh, the day of receiving bad grades has no concept bearing because they don't monitor that result that they had come up with. So is there any idea we have as to why this sense of continuity with self, there's a disconnect for some and some are able to see oneself so clearly as the same person through passage of time? Yes, I've been thinking about this, uh, this sort of thing recently. Again, we have to realize we evolved from animals who just live in the present, you know, for whom commitments made weeks ago or uh, planning for tests weeks ahead. This is not part of their life. Now, humans are more than animals. We're able to go beyond that, but we're also animals, and there is always that tendency to be pulled back uh, into the present. Ideally, we like to construct uh, a life and a self for ourselves that would be continuous uh, from birth to death and would uh, carry on and maintain our commitments and pursue our values and, uh, and so on, uh, I think almost every real case is incomplete in that regard. So it's, it's an ideal toward which we strive and uh, we'll fall somewhat short, but a lot of us obviously will get closer than others uh, to doing that. So, yeah, I mean, it's one of the the basic human advances say to make a promise. There's no such thing as promises in the, in the animal kingdom, but uh, <laughs> yes. I can make you a promise that uh, a year from now I'll meet you and pay you back the $10 that you give me today. And I can actually do that, although I'll be tempted not to along the way. And other things that self-control works with you know, this, this capacity to unify ourselves over time and so even if I borrow money today and a year from now, I don't feel like paying it back. A good self-control says, no, wait a minute. I made a commitment and I have to uh, go out of my way and make sure that I, I do uh, pay this back as is my obligation. But you, you see the, uh, 
the animal inside, the pressures are always not to do this and not to bother uh, and to live more uh, in, in terms of uh, what uh, feels good and is useful today and not to not tie into the long run. So, yes, this time thing, this is, this is tremendously important. I'm reminded, too, of uh, Ainsley's uh, comments on addiction, which is uh, that you have to act today as if, in the Kantian sense, this is setting the rule for, for all time. Uh, the way I sometimes paraphrase it is, uh, if you're a cigarette smoker, it's always rational to have one more cigarette because mm. the cigarette will taste good and the likelihood that anything bad will happen to you based on one cigarette is uh, is vanishingly small. <laughs> so it always makes sense to go ahead and have another cigarette. But the accumulation of making that choice over and over again will have serious consequences for your your health and well-being. So you somehow, when you're deciding, should I have a cigarette right now, you have to import this long-term perspective and say, well, years from now, I'll wish that I did not have this cigarette and all the other cigarettes I'm tempted to have this week. Uh, and so say no to yourself each time, uh, even though logically, rationally, in the present, uh, any one of those cigarettes isn't going to do any uh, uh, any damage. Yeah, and that's so hard. So... <laughs> I think uh, when when you are standing in front of the refrigerator at 11 p.m. and there's, you know, three ice cream bars and you weigh the same since this morning, it's hard to imagine this ice cream bar is actually going to in- increase any weight or reduce, not help in reducing. So why do we feel so disconnected? Uh, is that the depletion? You know, because all this requires activating the thoughts about future self. And sounds to me that depletion of energy can have impact on putting that extra effort cognitive effort or is it a, a psychological weakness or is it all of it <laughs> well the temptation to eat the ice cream and so on that that comes from from nature uh, that we evolved when calories were scarce and eating uh, eating sugary uh, sweet foods is a great way to uh, get energy into your body so uh, even today people who live out in the forest as hunter gatherers if they get a chance to eat something sweet, they eat all they can. They don't have any uh, danger of becoming becoming fat. But most of us live in a civilization where there's unlimited food, and it's kind of the reverse situation from what we evolved to deal with and to cope with. Uh, so now we have to hold, hold back uh, from doing what our body tells us to do. So I guess what I'm suggesting with this is the... Uh, the impulse to indulge keeps arising in the present and is, is understandable. It's, it's part of our nature. But in the long run, self-control helps pull us together and makes us uh, realize that uh, we can't really eat all these sweetening things or act on all these impulses because uh, that, that would produce uh, bad results in the long run. Yeah, well, what a tug, you know, <laughs> as you mentioned. So let me ask you a interesting, bordering, more spiritual question. I consider myself a spiritual person and I'm reading a lot of Hindu scriptures and there's a wonderful push to uh, work on diminishing desires. Uh, So there is a resisting temptation versus eliminating or working on diminishing desires. Is there such possibility that humans can actually evolve to a level where they can success fully eliminate those desires that cause uh, harm to their future self? Or is it mostly we will be kind of um, always (laughs) 
hovering over this uh, resisting temptation and some days we are successful and some days we are not. So what kind of role culture also plays in that, you think? Okay, well, let me let me start with the uh, changing desires. And this is a profound question. We only have a little data on that, but I, my thinking based on what our, our data suggests is, is that, yes, you can modify desires, that uh, desires um, increase and decrease are kind of consistent with the, the basic uh, learning theory of whether they're reinforced or uh, punished or uh, extinguished. So when you want something and you get it and then you enjoy it, well, that makes you want it a little bit more. Uh, so continuing to indulge will increase that pattern of desire. Whereas if you cut it out of your life, uh, maybe the desire doesn't go away completely, but it, it certainly diminishes a lot. I've talked about addiction and cigarette smoking, and that appears to be what happens. The data suggests that as soon as the person decides to quit smoking, the desire drops some, but it fluctuates, it comes and goes. But uh, after about a month, the, the, the cravings are significantly uh, reduced, uh, which means if you the, the desire for something is sustained by getting it and, and enjoying it. And you see the same thing with uh, everything from... <laughs> Like baseball uh, fans who uh, seem to survive just fine when the season is over, even though when baseball's going, they want to check the scores every day and find out what's happening with uh, foods. Now, food, you know, we need to survive, but specific kinds of foods, when people say change to become a vegetarian, uh, at first maybe they miss the meat and have desire for it, but then that uh, uh, that tends to go away, and they often say they don't they don't really miss it. People during uh, carbohydrates um, report the same sort of thing, that after they cut out eating carbohydrate-rich foods, after a while they stop missing it, whether it was when you start eating these things, french fries and donuts or even just bread and so on, uh, then your body gets to want that and you start to want that more. Um, so I'm skeptical. I know some of the Eastern spiritual ideals were to uh, get rid of uh, earthly desires altogether. And it would be impressive if they could do that. But desires for sex and food and so on are pretty deeply uh, rooted in the human psyche. I, I'm skeptical that they can be completely eliminated, but they, uh, uh, they certainly can be uh, reduced and they can be increased as well based on the things you do in your life. Uh, the second part of your question in terms of cultural influences on that, it's mostly culture that makes us perceive the need to uh, transcend our desires and stifle them, that, that we don't want to have these desires anymore. Uh, <clears throat> so um, let's talk about being vegetarians. You know, this is a, a cultural phenomenon. We don't know, I don't think anywhere in nature is there evidence of, say, meat-eating animals who voluntarily decide they're not going to eat meat anymore for moral reasons and they're, they're just going to eat vegetables. But humans do this all over the world. They also do it for health reasons. So you can, uh, but again, these are cultural inputs. Uh, the same with the sexuality. Uh, and people resolve that they're only going to have sex with a particular other person for the rest of their lives in marriage. Uh, mm. Or uh, if they resolve to give up sex for uh, religious reasons, as many spiritual traditions uh, have encouraged, these two are, uh, are, are cultural guidelines and cultural support. So the individual's capacity for self-control uh, gets its context, its uh, standards to work for, and so on, 
from the culture that says these are good ways to be, and the person then tries to change to live up to those. Yeah, and my, if I can uh, add some of my observations about this, for example, since Hinduism is an Eastern uh, practice, one of the things that I have come to understand from Vedas is something called satsang, which is being in the company of those who are also in pursuit of the same goals as you are. And so when you are working on uh, desires, uh, what's interesting, it's it's not talking about the primal desires, as, as you mentioned, you know, uh, food, sex, or sleep. They're talking about more uh, the modern... I mean, I don't know if the word modern fits here, but uh, added ons, you know, like the comforts and and the pamperings and the, uh, you know, spoiling yourself kind of thing, like how to refrain. But you can't really refrain if you're going out, uh, you know, every Saturday night. So once you are in company of those who are also have decided to not go out that often, then they are doing and you are doing same things, which is contemplating on your spiritual self or becoming, you know, spending a lot of time becoming self-aware. So (laughs) that kind of serves the purpose of coming less in contact with desires, things that will provoke desires. So not so much. Yeah, it works multiple ways. I mean, we are social beings. And so being around other people who have similar values makes it much easier to live up to them uh, than if you're uh, trying to live a certain way among people who are living completely uh, different ways. So people want to quit drinking. They often find they have to... uh, distance themselves from their drinking buddies yes uh, with the same friends and say well i'll just drink coca-cola uh, club soda or whatever that uh, if everyone else is drinking there starts to be pressure and even if they don't say it it, well, it would be nice to have a drink myself and, and then it all starts again so yes being around people with uh, similar values and similar lifestyles uh, helps people live up to their ideas for sure So that brings me to the last question of this uh, interview. You know, morality or the capacity to do what's right also requires self-control, as we all know. One of the Christian bloggers that I was reading recently was talking about seven strategies, and here they are. And I was just wondering what your thoughts are with respect to, you know, willpower and your research. But they were presented as, you know, all social science research to me feels like, oh, yeah, my grandmother knows this kind of thing. You know, you discover something profound and you feel, oh, I I have always known that. But anyways, she says uh, that pray as Jesus taught, which is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Second thing, she says, know yourself well. Third, she says, learn to recognize temptations. Fourth is uh, take preventative actions. Five, uh, quote scriptures to yourself. Uh, Six, rest. And seven is remember there's always a way to escape. So I was just wondering, this comes from a color, uh, like, so to speak, uh, you know, street wisdom. And uh, how does the your uh, research support this or is she wrong in any ways? Self-control is very important for moral behavior. Uh, sometimes we have referred to self-control as the, the moral muscle uh, or the master virtue, <clears throat> because uh, most of the virtues uh, come down to uh, having these Self-control is some key aspect uh, of them. Morality is essentially a set of rules that say it's better to act this way than that way. And uh, in particular, they apply when people impulsively, selfishly feel like acting one way. But morality says, no, you should do what's better for others or what's better for the group or what's better in the long run. And so that's precisely the case for which self-control evolved when you feel like doing something, especially something that would uh, bring pleasure in the short run, but you'll be better off and to be better off in society in the long run if you, if you refrain from doing that. 
Uh, sure enough, we find when people's willpower is depleted, when their uh, powers of self-control, in other words, are, are diminished, they're more likely to do immoral things. We have even a variety of laboratory studies of our own uh, indicating that people are more likely to lie and steal money and so on when their self-control is temporarily down. Other people have found evidence that uh, people's behavior is more moral in the morning after they're rested and presumably recharge their powers of willpower and self-control. Uh, whereas uh, as the day wears on, the, the likelihood of uh, immoral behavior tends to increase. So, yes, I mean, I, I can't speak for the um, you know, some of the spiritual aspects on that list that are not scientific uh, hypotheses, uh, but uh, clearly scientifically correct to uh, be able to recognize a temptation, conserve your willpower, uh, get enough rest as, as one of those uh, indicated understanding long-term goals. All those are uh, important and useful for promoting moral behavior. Thank you, Dr. Bomeister. This has been a phenomenal interview and uh, your insights are going to have a profound impact on the listener's understanding of self-control, but more importantly, understand that self is in uh, work in progress and we all have hope to better ourselves if nothing, at least develop that understanding uh, about where you stand with respect to your own self-control. So I am tremendously grateful for your time, and I cannot thank you enough. Okay, well, thank you. All right, so that was Dr. Roy Bowmeister. Wow, Sujeda, what a what an intriguing conversation. I've realized I have a lot of work to do on improving my self-control. Lots to think about with this conversation. Uh, lead us off. Obviously, self-control is is very, very important. Any any initial thoughts from your chat with Roy? Yeah, of course. You know, I hope this discussion will prove to be a very useful tool for the listeners to organize their thoughts and formulate a framework to understand self-regulation and executive function. You know, so for starters, self-regulation or self-control is a larger umbrella term, as he was talking about, that encapsulates uh, human response to conflicting human motivations or intentions. So primarily fueled by conflict. I want this and I also want that. And so I need to kind of have some type of control to say which one uh, trumps in that moment. And so while human drive compels us to act, self-control redirects that impulse to pause. So from going further. So stop. This pause is the exact time where uh, we get to cool off this impulse that's kind of pushing us towards acting and that can lead to stopping or completely giving up the drive. And of course, the longer the pause, more thinking can be recruited. Thinking skills can be recruited. So two things, at least in my practice, I see or the relevance to the work uh, of managing executive function is people don't pause and they don't pause long enough to do something else or think of alternatives. While the seed of human motivation is wanting, the self-regulatory process is the checking system that forces us to rethink if the wanting is critical, is it relevant, or is it urgent? And if the answer to those three questions is no, then the self-control is a gentle way of nudging the self to reassess the want or desire towards letting go. And I find this as a most beautiful inner spirituality in that, in some sense, that, uh, you know, like it's letting go the impulse to want that is exactly what self-control allows you to do. 
And that's why self-control is governed by more by evolved parts of the brain. As a result, uh, it exerts from top-down process by compelling us to think differently, emote differently, and even act differently. So less evolved the self-regulatory system, less nudging signals are generated by the top-down system. Hence, no redirection of any sorts happens, and hence the individual continues to tread on the path towards shallow, self-serving ways that may lead to temporary joy or temporary satisfaction, gratification even, but it's a less than flattering outcome for the future self. And as a result, the person does whatever he likes, however he likes it, and blows caution to the wind and sabotages the future uh, for current moment of pleasures and happiness. So in short, uh, the self-control is the gatekeeper that allows a or disallows the action in spite of the motivation um, um, motivation to pursue it. So every example of the breakdown in self-control is where the desire to have and to keep what you want is put to use, and uh, it's all driven by here and now. So that's kind of the way I see the takeaway from this conversation. Well, I thought that the link between self-control and self-awareness was quite fascinating as well. Yeah, you nailed it, Todd. At the heart of uh, self-control is the ability to bring about self-change. But the question is how? You know, how does uh, one bring about change in self? That's where the self-awareness or uniquely symbolic human trait, as Dr. Bomeister talks about it, emerged as a tool to aid in self-control. So to me, it's nothing but a bridge to transcendence. So self-awareness is not the same as I'm aware of me, but it's more like I'm aware of what I see in me uh, working for me or not working for me. And so it's kind of the internal check that that's what the self-awareness I'm talking about. So it allows you to compare current state of affairs with the goals we have for ourselves and propels us to take actions if the two don't match. This is uh, what allows us to evaluate and see how we measure up to the societal norm or the golden standard or personal ideals um, uh, we, we hold in high regard. And this is the very thing that allows us to conduct a cost-benefit analysis to see if the current action will impinge on future results. And if any harm uh, or unfavorable results are detected, then self-control kicks in and saves the day. If we look at uh, life through the lens of self-control, you begin to see a scale emerge, some with very little self-control, while those with incredible self-control. Those two are the opposite ends of the spectrum, and human behavior ranges between these two two bookends, so to speak. So one group with least adaptive skill set, while the other group is constantly adapting, adjusting, tweaking self and bettering uh, themselves for the future outcomes. One group is sitting with magnifying glass, hyper-focused on the pleasures of the current moment, while the other group is sitting down on top of a mountain with a set of binoculars, looking into the distant future and making compromises and shaping it for better outcomes as they go further and further. So finally, an interesting benefit of self-control, which Roy talked about is having, um, he didn't use this specific term, but I see it as having minimal regret, you know, anticipating in advance the woos of terrible temporary displeasures. Um, the self-control is kind of the mechanism that allows you to endure the temporary um, hardship that you feel because you are letting go the joys or pleasures, but really 
if you learn to bear the discomfort of bearing down through daily grind and come to love the mundane in hopes that this is going to change, uh, lead to a change in success and greater rewards, that's when self-control can let you be your entire human potential. So, Chita, would you mind reviewing the mechanics of self-control for our listeners? Just one more time, please. Yeah, of course. This is the third takeaway. You know, Dr. Bomeister clearly stated that there are three critical ingredients to self-control, but I'm going to take a moment to summarize them again so people can see the connection between these three components of the future positive life outcomes. So the first crucial component ingredient is the self-imposed personal expectations. These are the personal standard or the tool that we use to compare our own behaviors and attitudes towards the standards set by either parents and society in the beginning and eventually the standard that you set for yourself. So for example, in my house, we watch TV only on weekends. So when we say that, this is the standard I, we have set for us as a family. And then if I'm watching TV on the weekday, then I am not allowing or breaking some type of self-imposed law. At school, we are not allowed to bring cell phones in the classroom. This is another way to set the expectations. And then uh, that becomes the guiding compass for self-regulation. At our church, we always put something in the collection box. That's another way to adhere to these expectations that society has from us. So second ingredient, uh, crucial ingredient, is tracking self through passage of time. Uh, what Dr. Bomeister was calling uh, monitoring is a crucial aspect of kind of seeing uh, self uh, through passage of time. So the research shows, as you mentioned, journaling about your behavior, keeping a diary of some sort, uh, or kind of leaving some written record for reflection is really, really important here. You know, in other psychological works, this is called self-distancing. This is also allows people to regulate themselves better if there is a difference or distance between current self and the future self or the thoughts that you have versus the imagination you have for your own better future self. If you revisit these words a week later, a month later, or even a year later, you can tell um, you have come far, um, uh, you know, far along in this journey of maturing and getting better and better. And of course, this kind of monitoring requires self-awareness. And this process of, uh, for example, uh, leaving a written trail builds self-awareness. And finally, the third ingredient is willpower. And what's so interesting is Dr. Bomeister is the first one, his lab and his research is the one who actually concluded that it's a finite resource. And it actually is like a muscle that wears out with uh, use. So more and more uh, willpower you exert, less and less willpower you have. And typically, you know, impulsive crimes uh, happen more often more frequently or in greater numbers in the evening. Uh, you know, people tend to do online shopping uh, more in later hours of the day. You tend to overeat towards the end of the day. So those kinds of things, again, is a breakdown in willpower as there is something called ego depletion or depletion of your mental resources by having taken decisions earlier part of the day. You have less fuel to take better decisions in the uh, later part of the day. So that's kind of the three important ingredients. Am I making sense? Oh, it makes all kinds of sense. And you can count me in that grouping of people who have weakness at the end of the day and to have a little additional snacking. So I perfectly understand what you're talking about there. You know, another thing I would love to hear you comment on 
and what you think about is this connection between self-control and culture. What do you think there? Yeah, so, you know, this to me is is a fascinating, fascinating topic and extremely crucial. I, I often find people with executive function challenges also struggle with social appropriateness. And uh, I see the connection that the first crucial ingredient he was talking about, which is self-imposed personal expectations. And what is the first uh, guardrail? Uh, Who sets the first guardrail for the way individuals should behave? It's the social construct. And so we as human beings are extremely social and cultural input is extremely critical in promoting the standards that we work towards. And take example of, uh, you know, somebody being able to stay celibate if they come from a certain faith uh, is an example of that cultural imposition. Uh, You know, giving up meat on Fridays during Lent is another example of that. Staying away from electronics during uh, Sabbath, that's another example of that. You know, I'm a vegetarian and I'm a Hindu, so giving up uh, meat, not that I you know, it was not giving up meat because I was a vegetarian since childhood. Um, not uh, tasting certain types of food is a product uh, simply uh, of being um, humans being a cultural creatures. You know, monkeys don't give up bananas since it's Friday. You know, they don't do that. <laughs> so what I see is the most important part the culture plays is it promotes promotes transcendence. You know, it is. Uh, that process whereby we say, I will not allow me to do this because I come from this place. And in that place, in quotes, is where such things are not permitted or such things are not allowed. And that is how we uh, have developed the highest form of self-regulation by coalescing and connecting with each other and forming these camaraderies and larger groups and develop this identity. So when I you know, get into the elevator and whether I take a call depends on how I want to let people think of my group identity or my culture. So, you know, not taking a call in the elevator, speaking loudly becomes a good self-control process because the cultural hold, um, a culture has on me, so to speak. Uh, It's the same same thing that another benefit of this is being able to do something for a long-run effect uh, rather than short-term outcomes. So even cutting down trees to get lumber versus preserving forest uh, for long-range, better environmental outcomes. So those kinds of decisions we are able to take better if we come from that type of cultural context. As I frequently say on the show, Sucheta, I mean, there's so much to think about here. It's fascinating. Uh, uh, lots to process. Um, I guess before we wrap this conversation, uh, any any final thoughts? Oh, absolutely, Todd. I think my my suggestion to all my listeners is first of all and foremost, self control is a skill we can develop, promote, and master. The most important thing we can teach ourselves and our children and our workplace uh, peers is think before you act. You know, modern take modern life uh, promises, shortcuts, and conveniences. That means circumventing old-fashioned, grit-promoting, character-building, pain-inducing, and uh, pain-bearing exercises, uh, exercise called waiting. So, you know, take an example, uh, you know, Starbucks or, um, you know, Subway now have app which 
kind of lets you order ahead. So you actually circumvent standing in line or arrive into the store and pick up your order. So you don't have to deal with anyone or anything. That to me is really, really getting rid of self-control. You know, self-control is painfully watching uh, the customer before you uh, struggle to find their wallet in the large bag. Or self-control is finding that the previous customer taking a sip of their drink and saying, eh, I didn't want uh, sugar syrup. Can you uh, make another one? And then you have to wait so that they can be, uh, you know, they receive their, their drink made again. And I think this impatience permeates every aspect. So if we don't have patience in everyday mundane tasks, we won't have patience for our self-change, which is nothing but transformative process that is brought upon through self-control. So I just want people to really think about doing this for self. And for those who work with cognitive training and executive function management, I want people to uh, think about that in a specific way, which is also teaching um, individuals to learn to wait, um, have some self-regulation by self-distancing and becoming really, really self-aware and become contextually sensitive. What is my context where I'm expected to behave? So hopefully with that, I mean, we all will be riding this wave of personal transcendence, Todd. (laughs) Well, you know, listening to both the conversation with you and Dr. Bowmeister and then listening to you go through the takeaways here, I I realize that I still have a lot of skill to develop here with self-control. And that's in part intimidating, but also in part exciting. and, And I think I guess I can say is that this is a skill you have to continue to work on and, and hone through your lifetime. I'm, I'm approaching 50 and I still have obviously a lot of room to improve on my self-control. It's quite intriguing. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. On behalf of our host, Sue Cheda Kamath, and all of us at Cerebral Matters, thank you for tuning in and listening. We look forward to seeing you again right here next week on Full Prefrontal. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.